The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you for um, your grace and mercy to us in Christ. We thank you for the complexity, the beauty, the, the magnificence of your salvation plan. It's a complex plan. Uh, it's been on, unfolding uh, in redemptive history for all these millennia, thousands of years. And then in our own lives, uh, Lord, you are wisely and powerfully dealing with sin day after day in our lives. And you're saving us, O oh Lord, uh, powerfully and sovereignly, uh, working with us, O oh Lord, as we are new creations and we are um, deeply consenting to your work of mortification in our lives, but we also fail in so many ways. And we're getting to see just how corrupt we are and how much we needed a Savior, still need one, we will need one in the future. And I pray that you would humble us, uh, enable us to redouble our efforts, our commitment to mortification. I pray that the teaching that we do this morning, the topics that we go through would be helpful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're coming, we are coming to the end of our uh, study this week and next week is it. Um, I have commended to you the book of Romans and will continue to commend uh, Romans above John Owen's work, above anybody else's work, so that you go back again and again to Romans 6, 7, and 8, those three chapters built on the foundation of Romans 1 through 5, built on the foundation of justification, how vital it is that we understand how those two fit together, that we do not mortify sin not having understood justification by faith alone, that we would just lapse into what uh, medieval Catholic monks and nuns and others were doing toward mortification, which was just a total works religion is all it was. Uh, terror of hell, uh, harsh treatment of the body, extended fastings, different things, without any sense at all of the grace of God in Christ, without any assurance. Uh, but we know uh, that, that God is very wise in the way he has written the book of Romans and how he unfolds universality of sin. In Romans 1 through 3, uh, everyone is sinful and needs a Savior, very clearly unfolded in Romans 1 through 3. And then the redemption, the, the, the death of Christ, clearly portrayed in Romans 3, 21 through 26, the glowing heart of the gospel. God presented him as a propitiation uh, through faith in his blood. His wrath removed. Our faith in Christ is what saves us ultimately. Justification by faith alone, clearly established in Romans 3. Uh, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.30. It's very clearly taught and then exemplified in Romans 4 in the case of, of Abraham and David. Both of them were justified by faith apart from works long before Christ even came. Uh, it's always been the same. And then the teaching of, of assurance of salvation in Romans 5, so beautiful. And then the two Adams teaching, and then it leads right then into sanctification. How then shall we live? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? May it never be. And so that, that Romans 6, the key, the key doctrinal chapter on sanctification. Uh, so all the things you really need to know are there. Um, Romans 7 and 8 adds two very important insights. Uh, but Romans 6 teaches sanctification, progressive growth in holiness. 
by considering yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And even before that, by the, the fact, the spiritual fact, that if you're a Christian, you're united with Jesus, spiritually, mystically united with Christ, united in his death, united in his resurrection, and that union is the basis of all sanctification. And so you are to consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How you think about yourself is vital, and I would say that's absolutely true in the moment of temptation. How you think about yourself in the moment of temptation is vital. If you understand at that moment, I am dead to this sin. I don't need to sin. And as it says at the end of the chapter, what benefit, what fruit ever came from sin? It's all, all it's ever done is damage you. So if you just see it properly, then you'll be able to mortify. Then Romans 7, second half of the chapter, unfolds just how incredibly difficult this battle is going to be. Don't be surprised, like Peter says. Don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. So don't be surprised if mortification's hard. Don't be surprised if you have a law within you that pulls you, it seems, almost inexorably toward wickedness and sin. Don't be surprised at that. Uh, sin is a, not a light problem for us. It is woven like almost down to the very DNA of our being. This law within our members that makes us do wickedness, that, that the very thing we hate, we do. And the thing we yearn to do, it seems, we, we, uh, we do not do. And so there are these two laws almost. There's the delight in God's moral law that we have now as Christians. You would not have that if you weren't regenerate. You would not have it. It's very clear in Romans 8 that the natural mind hates the law of God, despises the law of God. But if we actually can say with Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law, I delight in it, it's my meditation day and night. If you've got a yearning after it and you're like, I love it, I just can't seem to live it, well, then welcome to Romans 7. That's the very thing Paul says. I, I, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So we've got a future deliverance yet to come. Future deliverance. And I get to preach week after week. Somebody asked me, I think, I think positively, how much longer are you going to be in Revelation? I, th I think it was positive. I'm, I'm going to take it positively. But I, I think the more I talk to that individual, they, they are not wanting to hurry through any discussion of heaven because they're just, the Romans 21, I'm sorry, Revelation 21, 22 are so unique and you may never get a chance to hear exp expository preaching on those, on those chapters again. So to be able to walk through and have a sense of the beauty, the absolute beauty of that new Jerusalem to which we're going, I get to do that this morning. Um, but we know from 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must be transformed. We need to be delivered. We need to be rescued and we will be. Uh, through glorification, we're going to be delivered. So Romans 6 gives you everything you need to know about sanctification. Romans 7 tells you just how hard it's going to be. It's going to be a fight to the day you die. Um, and parenthetically on that, um, I was reading, Trevin Wax was writing this morning just about just, you know, pastors and spiritual leaders that fall into sin and just how devastating that is. And he was talking, Trevin Wax was talking about uh, a Romanian uh, guy that he was with uh, who was in his 70s, and uh, he confessed that he was uh, still, to some degree, uh, living in fear day after day of someday in the future doing something to dishonor Christ and to dishonor his own testimony and his heritage of service to God. I mean, the guy was in his 70s. And I'm not going to say any names, but even some, some leaders in their 60s have fallen even quite recently, and it's very sad and scary for me. 
I was hoping that, you know, at age 60 or something, we'd get, I'd, I'd graduate out of mortification, but it just isn't, isn't the case. And so we have to be vigilant, friends. We've got we to gotta fight until the day that we die. And then Romans 8 tells us something we absolutely need to understand, and this is where we're at right now. The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the indwelling Spirit in all of this. We are not called on to the battle of sanctification unaided or alone. And there's a lot of purposes. First of all, we know unaided and alone will fail. But even were we to succeed, we would fail. Why would I say that? If we were to, to be able to, to mortify, to be sanctified, unaided, why would that be, from heaven's perspective, a massive failure? If we were to be successfully sanctified, unaided, why would that be a massive failure from heaven's perspective? Yeah, we didn't need a Savior. We didn't need the Holy Spirit. You did it on your own. And that's the very thing our flesh wants to do anyway. That's the, and and more, John Owen's going to say, self-mortification by self-efforts and self-technique is the very spirit of every false religion there's ever been in the world. That's what the, it's all about. So I wasn't being clear, sorry. But um, we are going to be sanctified only by the power of the Spirit. First of all, we wouldn't be sanctified without Him. I mean, no matter how much you tried, those false religions, they're false. They don't work. Uh, they have no, no power in dealing with the genuine sin nature, Paul says in Colossians 2. The harsh treatment of the body just simply doesn't work. All right, But aside, aside from that, um, the Holy Spirit is in us, and this is the mystery of it. All right, so this is the review of, of Romans. Let's get into mortification. We've got two weeks to deal with it. So uh, The key text is Romans 8.13. If somebody could read this uh, for us out, off the handout from the KJV. You guys get to speak KJV this morning. At least one of you does. Okay, very good. Now, NAS. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I think it's very important for us to understand what he means by die and live here. Okay? I think we, uh, we have to see it similar to the text I preached on on Easter Sunday last week. Uh, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me, what? Will never die. Well, either that's a false promise or we need a, a more robust understanding of die there. Because Christians die. So I think it's reasonable to think that Jesus there is talking about the real death, the eternal death of hell, or what the book of Revelation calls the second death. You will not die eternally. And so I think it's beneficial. I'm not saying this doesn't say anything about our daily life and uh, that kind of thing. I think it absolutely does. But ultimately, we should hear Romans 8.13, ultimately. There are two ways to live. There are two roads. There's the broad road that leads to destruction. And I think in, in, in Matthew 7, when he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, I think the word destruction there would be the same as die. That would be condemned and go to hell. So there is a road that leads to hell, and then there's a different road that leads to heaven or eternal life. And I think that those two ways to live, those two roads, two journeys, they're described here in verse 13. Okay, The road to hell is a road of living according to the flesh. As Paul just described in Romans 8, the mind of the flesh, hostile to God, doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
It doesn't bear fruit for life. It bears fruit day after day for death. That's that life. That life leads to hell. And you almost get a sense, as Paul says in many other places, not here, but I, I think we get the sense of it, do not be deceived. He's writing to Roman professors of faith in Christ. Do not be deceived about the kind of life you're living. If you are living according to the flesh, honestly, you are living according to the flesh, you will be condemned to eternal, eternal death. That's what he's saying. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And I think, again, we should understand eternally. Not in any way saying that you won't have benefits here and now. That is the best kind of life you can live now. But Paul's really, I think, speaking ultimately. This is the life that leads to eternal life. This is the pattern of life that leads to heaven. So this is not an option. This isn't like super Christianity. This is not like advanced placement Christianity or, or, or uh, you know, PhD level Christianity. Because the very next verse, it's not in the sheet, but in Romans 8, 14, he says, because, so he's continuing the thought, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. And again, I think it's right to, I, I'm not trying to change scripture, but just in terms of exegesis and explanation, these only are the children of God. We could, we could in our minds add the word only. Only those that are led by the Spirit of God in this issue are children of God. So don't be deceived. He says it in other places. If you're living this sort of life, you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Uh, don't be deceived about this. So fundamentally, we need to embrace sanctification as absolutely essential to salvation, essential to, to heaven. As it says in Hebrews 12, be very diligent to maintain the unity, unity uh, together with the brothers and uh, to, uh, to be holy Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So there's a holiness in Hebrews 12, 14 that takes effort. There's a striving after holiness that if you don't do it, you will not go to heaven. It's teaching the same thing. And again, it makes me uh, just fearful for the truncated gospel taught in so many evangelical, even Southern Baptist churches, in which the effort is always to get people to make that initial profession of faith in Christ and then just doesn't teach on this, doesn't teach on sanctification. Week after week after week, they're trying to get people to walk the aisle, to pray that initial prayer, that, et cetera. But they're not, not, now what? I did that, someone could say, 15 months ago. Is there nothing for me? Or I'm going to hear the gospel again this morning. And we're going to try to get a new crop of people to walk the aisle. You see what I'm saying? It's like it's a truncated ministry. It's not even real ministry. They're not teaching this. So fundamentally, we've got to embrace this. So let's just walk through as Owen does. He's just doing exegesis here. Um, observations on the test. First, there is a duty prescribed. You must mortify the deeds of the body. Okay, the person to whom it is prescribed is ye in the King James. So you must mortify. There is a promise annexed to the duty. If you do, you shall live. Ye shall live. Okay, the cause or means of the performance of that duty is the Spirit. If ye through the Spirit or by the Spirit, different ways that we translate that, but that's the means by which you may perform your duty. And there's a conditionality of this whole. There is a duty, means, promise contained, if. Okay, with the word if, here there's a sense of uncertainty of the event. I don't know that you will mortify. I don't know that you won't. I'm just giving you a principle. If you mortify 
you will live. So there's a certainty of the connection. Like Owen says, like saying to a sick man, if you take this medicine, you will be well. There is uh, an implication. If you don't, you won't. If you don't take the medicine, you won't be well. But there is a remedy. And there is an absolutely certain connection between mortifying the deeds of the body by the Spirit and living. So it's an absolutely strong connection in the text. There is an emphasis given on who must mortify, ye. We need to understand who is he talking about. Well, you have to go back then to the beginning of the chapter, and you could even go further back. Realize there are no chapter divisions when Paul first wrote Romans. But we could go back to 8.1. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Right? They are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Verse 9. They are made alive by the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 10, and 11. These are the ones who must mortify. So we're talking about what we just say simply Christians. Somebody's a brother in Christ, making a profession of faith in Christ. Well, when were you saved, brother? Well, you didn't tell the story. It's like, good. I know I'm, you can see somebody on the plane or somebody out. It's like you find out and you just, you, you just say, okay, he's a brother. That person needs to mortify. And so do you. All right, so Christians are the ones that are being addressed here. So let me just stop and say this one thing I've been saying again and again for years. We are not done being saved. Your salvation's not finished yet because your salvation's bigger than justification. So we're not done being saved. We need to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's work to be done, that's all. And parenthetically, that's why you come to a good church. You don't, you don't come, I'm not saying FBC is the only good church that you should come to. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if we are a good church, we'll help you be saved. If we are a good church, we'll help you finish the race. Fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. We're going to help you run this race to the end, and we'll be running it too. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, watch after your life and your doctrine, watch after your, your gift of preaching and public reading of Scripture. If you do, if you do, Timothy, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So I'll put myself in Timothy's place there. I'm not done being saved either. So I need, to keep, I need to keep understanding these things. Even though we only have two more weeks in this, I need to keep swimming in this. Yes, because the Bible gives me that language. You know, the past, present, and future. Were you saved? Yes, I was saved. But at that point, we understand that the word has been reduced, and it's okay to do it from time to time, to justification alone. But not just I was saved, but I am saved. Well, all of them. Yeah, for in this hope you were saved. It says that in another place. But hope that is seen is no hope that at all, at all, et cetera. So the Bible uses past tense on saved, so I feel free to do that. I just think, Jay, I, and I know you know this, uh, just the, sa- the, the closer we stick to scriptural language, the better. So I feel totally free to say I was saved because the Bible uses that language. But I also can't just say that's all it is. If we lose the are being saved or work out your salvation with fear and trembling aspect and say, oh, no, no, it says we were saved, so I don't need to do that. Now you've pitted Scripture against Scripture. We're not going to do that. So we're going to add and expand our understanding of salvation. But yeah, if you were to ask me, hey, were you saved? It's like, I'll know what you mean. I'll say, yeah. When were you saved? October 1982. I was at a retreat my junior year in college, and I'll tell the story. Now, my kids, your kids probably can't tell a story like that. They were saturated with the gospel from the time they were still in the womb. I can tell you that. I preached the gospel to my kids while they were in the womb. I don't think they responded that well. They wiggled a little bit. But, 
and then that's what you know godly Christian parents need to do. Supersaturate your kids for the moment they, they come home from the hospital, even before that. I mean, that's, yeah, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's really important. That's a great question. <clears throat> I guess, you know, combining the two things, I would accept the definition, uh, but I, I would say you do, you do know you're, you're, you're talking about justification at that moment. So once that I have been justified, I will forever be justified. Do I think that's true? Absolutely. Absolutely. God never unjustifies us. Never. So having been declared righteous on the base of my faith in Jesus, I will never be declared later unrighteous. That just can't happen. I believe that. But the problem is that these folks are practically meaning we don't need to come to classes like this. We don't need to read Owen's book on mortification. We don't, I mean, and that's where we would differ. We, we, so I would actually, it wouldn't end the conversation. It actually almost really just begin the conversation at that point. Any other questions on that? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, I would just do, do a search on that phrase that, you know, be not deceived or do not be deceived. You know, there's a number of times he says it, and there's usually a sin list. If, if you're living this life, don't, I don't think you have any good reason for assurance. But now we're making a distinction between actually being justified and having a sense or a feeling that I'm justified. Those are two different things. The second is generally called assurance. I can assassinate my assurance. I can slaughter it. And amazingly, it can recover. <laughs> All right? I can have, on a given day, very poor assurance and still be justified. And that might even be part of God's discipline of me. It's like, you're not going to have any strong sense today that I love you. You're not going to have any strong sense of my presence with you. I have nothing good to say to your conscience right now. All right? And all of that, ah, that scary, awful feeling is meant to cause you to run back again to Christ crucified and resurrected and confess your sin and, and embrace. Those are healing things. That's why Peter goes outside and weeps bitterly. That weeping is so healthy. But that's assurance. And, and I think the Holy Spirit does use assurance as it waxes and wanes to help navigate this journey. But let's keep going on, Owen. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the, the statements. These Puritans just make so many amazing statements. Owen's strength isn't so much pithy, memorable, poetic-like statements, not so much, but more the logic, the doctrine, the, the way he unfolds truth, that's really, but this is a pretty good one. Can someone read this uh, for us, the choicest believers? That is flowing right from Romans 8, 1 through 13 or 14. It's flowing right from it. We are the choicest believers. In other words, choicest meaning these are your prime, top-level, leader-like believers and it's a how much more argument. If them, then how much more everybody. So basically every believer who are assuredly, praise God, free from the condemning power of sin. We're not under law. Law condemns. We're free from the law in its power to condemn. It will not stand as our enemy on judgment day and condemn us to hell. Praise God. We're free from that. Yes, amen. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, we ought, it's a strong, strong ought, ought to make it our business every day, all our days, to mortify the indwelling power of sin. In other words, there are no exceptions. If you're a believer in Christ, this is something you should be doing. So we need to uh, know about mortification. All right, now, it's essential to focus on the efficient cause of mortification, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit alone, can we mortify. There is no mortification apart from the work of the Spirit. This is what Owen says. All other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. By Him alone is it to be wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. Mortification, 
and I, I basically said this a moment ago, but look at it, mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. It's an incredible statement, but it's true. In other words, you're on your own, do your best, and be holy. That's, that's false religion. Now, if I could just stop and say, uh, some time ago recently, within the last five years, a combination of a sense of what the Holy Spirit has done for me up to this point in my life melted me and made me incredibly thankful to the third person of the Trinity. I have been a little leery of direct address to the Holy Spirit because there's not a lot of biblical examples of it, frankly. But we should not imagine, some people say these things, the Holy Spirit is kind of like the silent member of the Trinity, doesn't really ever talk about himself, only talks about Jesus. It's like, well, then how do we know anything about the Holy Spirit? Did that come by some other means? The Holy Spirit has taught us about the Holy Spirit. Apparently, he wants us to know about himself. And you know what? If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, none of you would be Christians. Jesus could have shed his blood and risen from the dead, and it would mean nothing to you. And we're surrounded by people for whom that's true. Why does it mean something to you? Because the Holy Spirit made it mean something to you. And why are you still a Christian after all the years of, of attack of the world, the flesh, and the devil? The Spirit won't let you go. He is at work in your life, and he's triumphantly, powerfully at work. So it's not like, boy, I need, to get, I need to get better with the Holy Spirit. It's like, yeah, you do, but the Holy Spirit has a grip on you, and he is working powerfully, and you owe him so much, and you should be thankful to him, and you should, you should express that thanks in some way. I, I put it this way. There are, there are no uh, examples of direct address and prayer to the Spirit I will say this, if you can lie to the Spirit, like Ananias and Sapphira did, and if you can, and if you can blaspheme the Spirit, if you, can, if you can grieve the Spirit, why can't we talk to Him? And so I would have to say, I'm not going to make it a pattern from the pulpit, but I will say in my private prayer life, I'm not talking about tongues, friends, I'm not saying that at all, I'm going to say to the Holy Spirit, thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for taking the heart of stone out and giving me a heart of flesh. Thank you that you've never given up on me through all of the many wicked things I've done since I've been a Christian. Thank you that you keep fighting me, my sins, and keep sanctifying me. Just the thankfulness. But the Holy Spirit is the efficient cause of mortification. Well, what is mortification? What does it mean? Uh, first of all, we have to understand uh, the mortification of the body, the sins of the body. And it's the same sense of the flesh as one sense, the old man, the sin nature. It is indwelling sin, let's say, the corrupted flesh, a seat and instrument of the lust and distempered affections that are part of sin. That's what, how Owen describes it. So uh, it's your body, your physical body, including your brain, as it's been marinating in wickedness all these years and has been super trained in various patterns of sin that are dishonoring to God. That's what the sins of the body are or the flesh. Um, the sin nature. It's all of those tendencies and habits you have toward inordinate affections, idolatrous affections, natural motions of the body, natural desires of the body, such as a desire for food or drink or sex, get pushed beyond boundaries into wickedness. That's the tendency. The pride that has you bicker with your wife or pridefully defend yourself or, you know, shade the truth. All of those forms of wickedness, that's the flesh. We could go on and on. And the sins are listed uh, in long sin lists, like at the end of Romans 1, so we can know what we're talking about. Slander, gossip, dishonoring parents, laziness, like the sluggard. There's just so many sin patterns. We can identify like a, a physician would 
uh, with a book of diagnostics. So he goes through to try to find what your disease is. And so not everyone has the exact same symptoms, or did, but we all have this, this sin. So it's the physical body, including the brain, as it's been wired and trained towards sin. That's what we're fighting. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? The deeds of the body? The deeds then would be the actual actions of sin that flow from that tendency. Okay? All right, deeds is the outward actions chiefly, but uh, the meaning here is also inward root from which uh, the deeds of the flesh spring. As John the Baptist said, the axe is already laid at the root to the tree. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown uh, in the fire. So there is a root system by which these things come up, and it is hard. You can think about some nasty dandelion or whatever or some other thing that, you know, if you don't pull it up by the roots, it's just going to come right on back. And you know exactly what we're talking about here in terms of your sin. There's a deep, interconnected, woven root system of your sins. Yeah, so I would, we would say it goes to that as well. Not just the outward you know, showing of it. So that you just behave better like you do on Sunday morning. Try to do that more all the time. No, that's too superficial. It goes deeper than that. Okay? What then does it mean to mortify? Now this is really important. To kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of its strength, vigor, and power so that he cannot act or exert. So the mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, that's the constant duty of believers. So I'm, I'm advocating here a principle of weakening, not an absolute killing. And Owen's going to get to that. You could say, well, why wouldn't we advocate an absolute killing? Because it's not possible. That's what Romans 7 is saying. Because if it's dead, it cannot live again. Correct? And therefore, you don't need to stand guard or watch over that area. You see what I'm saying? You don't need to be vigilant. And I think... If any man thinks he stands, take heed or be vigilant lest he fall. I'm just saying in counseling, I'm not going to hear from somebody. I know I'll never sin in that area again. I've been two years now free from that sin. I'm, I'm done. It's like, wow. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I think it's obviously it's possibly be fully human and not sin. Jesus' incarnation proves that. So we're not in any way saying that Jesus isn't fully human. He had all this genetic thing. And frankly, I'm, I'm not going to talk very long, Jay, on this question before I, I'll say I just don't know. But there is in some way a nature we got from Adam. Not just a positional sin. That we get. We died in Adam. I get that. But we also have a proclivity, it seems, in Adam. So that when the law comes, sin springs to life and we die. So we actually do that. So I don't know, Jay. I don't know, because I know uh, next, the next class I'm going to teach is on sexuality specifically and homosexuality, things like that. And, and there's that whole thing. It's like it's in the nature. And, and I, my feeling is it's like yes and no. Uh, I think there are some people that have same-sex attraction and things like that that I just have never in my life felt. And I, don't, I think it's likely that I never will. But I sin in other areas, so we're equally guilty before the law of God. I just don't have that particular pattern. And so I really, how it becomes genetic, I don't know. I don't even know that it's all that helpful. But I do know I can play off my own tendencies. I can say the areas I've sinned in the past, that tells me areas I need to give special vigilance to. So a guy like that would have to give special vigilance to that. But I, I think there may be a physiological stuff to it. I don't want to go beyond Scripture. 
in that? I don't want to go too far because the scripture isn't talking about genetics and things like that. Well, I understand. So let's not go hardwire then if you don't like that or physically. Let's just stick to the language of scripture. I see a law at work in my members. That's pretty strong. The law is not something you can touch. Right. I see a law at work in my members making me a prisoner of the law of sin in my members. That's at the end of Romans 7. So I'll stick with that. That's pretty strong tendency. So, you know, whatever we call it, we all know what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about a very strong internal pull toward wickedness. It's there. In my flesh, there is no good thing. So that's a good question. So I, I think, Jay, you and I would be vigorously in agreement that such, such, even if it could be proven, does not exonerate these people, does not set them free from, from blame concerning these areas. So they're still going to stand accountable before God, no matter what the physiological temptations and tendencies are. All right, and honestly, you really could trace that to any sin pattern, like a, like a short temper, you know, somebody's like, or, or, or even a, a proclivity to, to being a sluggard, oversleeping, real slow, doesn't get much done. You could, yeah, I, I wouldn't surprise me there were, that you could find a gene for all of those, but it doesn't, it doesn't exonerate us. Yeah, and, and besides, I think if there were some Christian scientists, and maybe they even are Christian scientists, I don't know, but they're like trying to get at each one. It's almost like the uh, demon behind every bush people where you're going you're gonna to drive out the, the demon of laziness and the demon of gluttony and the demon of, it's like now we're just becoming super scientific, the gene of this, gene of that. Look, let's just stick to Romans and Owen, okay, on mortification, all right, rather than trying to track down the gene and kill it. All right, let's keep going. Um, what is the promise attached to this duty? That is life. Ye shall live. Owen says this, the life uh, promised is opposed to the death threatened in the clause uh, foregoing. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But the word may go beyond our eternal life in heaven, uh, but include our ongoing experience of spiritual life here on earth with Christ. I think that's absolutely true. You don't begin your eternal life the moment you die. You begin your eternal life the moment you're justified. The moment you're regenerated, you begin your eternal life. That's, you know, Richard, that's where one saved, always saved come in. It's eternal life. It's never going to end. We have crossed over, decisively crossed over from death to life. If you hear Jesus' word and believes him who sent him, John 5, 24, you've crossed over from death to life. There's no crossing back. How could, what power could, could make us cross back over from life to death? It can't happen. So I think Owen's right. We're talking, yes, about eternal life hereafter. You want to go to heaven? You want to go through the gates into the new Jerusalem? Then you need to mortify. But it goes beyond that to say, you want a good life now? You want a fruitful life now? You want to be the best Christian you can be now? You want to have the maximum rewards you can have accumulated on judgment day? You must mortify. That's what he's saying. So, you, uh, thus it means you shall live, you shall have a good, vigorous, comfortable, spiritual life while you are here, and then obtain eternal life hereafter. So here's the next statement. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depend on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Let me say that again. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life now, right now, depend on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. So let's just stop and say, what does he mean by that? What does vigor and power mean to you? The vigor and power of your spiritual life right now. Vigor and power. Absolutely. Think about it. Sometimes I like to like, do the opposite thing, like vigor and power. What would the opposite be? 
of a Christian. Weak. Not weak. Lethargic, listless, right? Sadly, I wonder if that describes, you know, a lot of churches, a lot of even individuals. There's just like not a lot of spiritual vitality. There's not a lot of vigor, not a lot of energy. Huh, could it be that this might be relevant? There isn't mortification going on, and therefore there's not vigor and power there. There's not energy, because the people are, are sapped by guilt and by sin that they're not confessing. They're, they're trapped in it. That, so the vigor and power. So again, let's go back to the two journeys. If you want to be vigorous in holiness, then put uh, sin to death. You're like, well, that's uh, the same thing, isn't it? Well, I'm just saying there's a momentum to this. Start mortifying, you'll mortify even more. Start mortifying, you'll get even more energetic. You'll see yourself growing in Christ-likeness. Your prayer life will start expanding. Your, your joy, like Craig was just talking about, your sense of peace will just expand. Fruit of the Spirit will just start becoming vivid in your life. You'll you find yourself praying longer. you find yourself worshiping better. So internal journey, holiness. External journey, you'll just start doing more. More ministry, more people evangelized, more mission trips, more money given, more, 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 more of good things, an abundant harvest. I'm thinking it's worth it. <laughs> And it's like all of that, he's saying it's tied. It's not only tied, but it is definitely tied to mortification. So if you're not mortifying, then don't expect a vigorous, powerful, energetic, or very fruitful Christian life. All right? It depends on it. All right, let's go on. Keep going. Let's go back to uh, the, the duty. The choicest believers who are assuredly free from condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. He gives us a supporting text, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. By the way, the word therefore, do you have that, that uh, verse on your handout? I don't, yours is a greatly truncated handout, so I don't know what you have. Colossians 3, 5. Do you see the word therefore? Whenever you see that word, you should be trained to go backward in the text. Always look backward, because it doesn't... You, I, I, I can't imagine beginning an epistle or a gospel with the word therefore. Be like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like, maybe, maybe Luke Acts could do that. It's like in my first book, therefore, you know, all right, but we know we're reading volume two. All right, but this is right in the middle of a, of a, of a thought. So Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if I can just simply make the point. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's all eschatology. It's the new Jerusalem. We're going to get to do that in a few minutes when I preach. Set your mind on what's coming and on heavenly things. Set your minds on that. So here you are, you're in the heavenly realms, right? You're like, oh man, this is so good. Oh, this is awesome. I'm so happy. I'm going to heaven. Jesus is going to return someday. He is my life. Put to death, therefore. Do you see the link? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It's like, wow. The connection between heavenly meditation, really good heavenly meditation, and mortification is strongly linked here. They're just absolutely strongly linked. It does the same thing in 1 John 3. You know, uh, how great is the love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Brothers, now we are children of God. Beloved, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. 
It's the same teaching. Eschatological meditation, if it's really done right, will lead to holiness. It leads to getting ready for heaven now by putting sin to death. So, again, but the point's made. All believers, choicest believers, need to mortify, need to put sin to death. Okay? So, this is for Christians, even the most mature. Now, listen to what Owen says here. You must mortify! Exclamation mark. You must make it your daily work. You must be constantly at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And here's one of these famous statements from Owen. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Your being dead with Christ virtually, your being quickened with him will not excuse you from this work. Now let's just stop and just let's expand on the statement. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What are your thoughts about that? That's pretty, pretty memorable. Be killing sin and sin will be killing you. Richard, what do you think? But you need to stay up on top. I, I, one, one image I have here, and I got into this. I don't know that I'm going to keep doing it because these people keep dying. But I'm talking about free solo rock climbers. You know, the guys that climb these crazy like rock face like El Capitan with no ropes, no friends, nothing, just their hands and their, their special shoes. And uh, I remember watching a documentary on this guy, Alex Honnold, that, that it's you know, some, some track up El Capitan that had never been done before, et cetera. And they asked some expert, what's the most amazing thing about Alex Honnold? That he's still alive. <laughs> wow. And, and it was weird, too, because the, the interviewer, a woman, was, and, and at some point she's like, well, don't you ever think, you know, she didn't want to mention it, but it's like, you know, this is a bad hobby for you. I mean, you need to get out of this thing. And at some point she got a look on her face like, I'm talking to a dead man. He's like, well, I don't think about it that way. I mean, I just enjoy doing what I'm... It's like, well, you need to think about it. But here's the thing. Imagine someone who's three-quarters of the way up. Does their achievement up to that point free them from the need to continue to hold on? That's what I'm saying. It's like, I've made it all this distance. You need to make it the rest of the way. And actually, in some ways, it's even harder because you're a little more tired. You've been at it a long time, et cetera. But you're not liberated from, from the responsibility to hold on and keep climbing. And you, you're like, man, this is hard. Yes, it's hard. We're talking about warfare. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And, and it's like, you know, my, my job as a pastor is exhort myself and you to keep holding on and climbing so you don't fall. So again, yeah, it's good to keep that net, that understanding of justification. You're not, you're not going to be saved in the end on judgment day by how well you are sanctified. But I'm just talking about the life that leads to heaven. So the image I've had for a long time on this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, is fighting a black mamba snake, all right? So you're walking through the jungle, there it is, it sees you, you see it, and you are amazing, and you grab it by the neck, right? Right here, right? And it's wriggling all around, and you're fighting it. You got both hands around this thing, and it has one desire, the snake does, in its little snake mind. What's the snake's one desire now that you guys are wrestling? Kill you. And uh, you probably, I think, should have just one desire too. Now, you might get tired in that struggle. It might be tiring for you. And as I've said before, I picture this, where you say, this has been really exciting, Mr. Black Mamba. We've had a good fight, but I'm going to put you down and I'm going to go home now. And you have a good day and I've enjoyed this contest. You put it down, you release it. What's going to happen? You're, it's come immediately after you and kill you. That's sin. Sin in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, is frequently personified. Sin seeking the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and put me to death, that kind of thing. So sin is like Satan in that regard. It's an intelligent, deceptive, tricky force. 
and it's just after you all the time. And so you have to get after it all the time. You have to continue to, to be killing sin. And what's amazing is I've meditated on be killing sin or sin and be killing you is that neither one of you can do it. The sin can't kill you and you can't kill the sin. So what do I mean by that? Why do I say the sin can't kill you? Yeah, because we've crossed over from death to life. Uh, this, your, your struggles with your indwelling sins will not, will not condemn you. That's good to know, isn't it? Your, your struggles with indwelling if you are genuinely born again, your struggles with indwelling sin, those particular sins, will not drag you to hell. They won't win. So Satan is not in the end going to kill you. He is not in the end going to put his foot on your throat. No, the God of peace will see to it that you will soon crush Satan under your feet. You're going to win. You're going to be more than conquer, more than a conqueror. So the sin can't kill you, meaning get you out of Christ or no longer a Christian. But we've already said you can't kill the individual sin either. You're going to be fighting this to the day you die. So you just need to be aware of the need, need for the fight. Be, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Absolutely. I mean, we're just, yes, it's, uh, it's right there, I think, in the handout. Um, right here, Philippians 3.12, right here. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. So, Craig, you and I are, we're in sync. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Now, here's, Owen says this. All right. So, we're refuting any possibility of perfectionism. We're not seeking uh, an honorable discharge while we live. God's not going to say to you, you know, you have fought really, really well. I am now going to discharge you from the battle, from the war. It's just not possible. Uh, Owen says this, Now it being our duty to mortify to be killing of sin while still in us, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he stops striking before the other ceases living, he does but half his work. And then Owen says this, When sin leaves us alone, we may leave sin alone. So again, go back to the snake. That just is not going to happen. So like, think about vacation. Like, do you ever take vacation from sin? Well, you definitely don't do it on vacation. <laughs> One thing I've known is like the flesh is especially active at that time. You're like thinking, I should have a break. And then you become very selfish and very carnal in your approach to life. So like sin is looking forward to your vacation. Not in any way thinking it's going to give you a break. But honestly, think about the devil tempting Jesus. And it says that he left him until an opportune time. He's coming back. He's coming back. So if I can just stop, we're walking through Owen, but he's, he, he's got plans, Owen does. He's got another 280 pages. We've got another seven minutes today and one more week next week. So let me talk practicality, all right? The key is how you handle individual temptations. That's the key to everything, all right? Temptations are the emanations, okay? The pulses that come out from a categorical sin, a type of sin, that are circumstantial, they're tied to something going on right now, that are pulling you into that categorical sin, whether arguing with your wife or a lust thought, something evil on the internet, okay, uh, something, some, some other form of idolatry. There's a specific orchestrated set of circumstances, right? It's a, a particular evening when David should have been out with the armies, but instead he's home, walking out on top of the roof, sees a woman bathing. That is a specific moment of temptation. That's the key moment in mortification, okay? It is possible to kill that temptation dead. 
it is possible. As a matter of fact, not only is it possible, it's expected, it's required of you to kill it dead. So you, you can't kill the sin categorically, such as lusting after a woman. I can't kill that categorical sin, but I can kill this particular manifestation of it. This particular evening, this particular moment, I can, not only can, but I should kill it by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean to you? You're right in that, you're, you're proverbially, you're walking on the roof and you're seeing the woman bathing. How does the Spirit enable you to mortify at that moment? What's the Spirit's role? Okay, so the Spirit works in you a desire to please God. Let's just go vertical. It's like, my desire is to please and honor you. May your will be done right now. It's the opposite of Adam's disobedience. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the Spirit gives you a desire. What else? What else does the Spirit do? How did Jesus fight temptation? Scriptures, scriptures the, the Holy Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Think about that. So the Spirit will bring to mind scriptures that you have memorized. Amen. You're like, well, wait, Pastor, I haven't really memorized any. Can I urge you to go get an arsenal? All right? No, no, I think it's important. I think I don't mind at this point. You know I advocate memorizing whole books, but I think that, that navigators started a topical memory system specifically for mortification. So go memorize some specific verses that will help you fight in specific areas. Like, I remember when I was a young man just out of MIT, single guy, and I was working in a corporate environment for the first time, and I couldn't believe in some cases some of the clothing that the women wore. I'm like, what in the world? It's like, it was hard. And I remember I, I, I found a, a series of verses in the Psalms which says, My eyes are fixed on you, O sovereign Lord, and you I take refuge. Do not give me over to death. Free me from the snares laid for me, from the traps set by evildoers. So there's a sense of eyes fixed on God, a trap I'm going to walk by. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I walk by in safety. I still have it memorized years later. So that was to help me not look. And I'll tell you one, one moment, just, just hang on a second. One moment, I was standing with my boss's boss's boss. No joke. This, he was just meeting me. I'd been working for about six weeks and he wanted to get me. I still know his name. I won't say his name. We stood side by side. And one of these young ladies walked by and he just stopped and just admired her as she was walking by. He was just lusting and he looked at me with this leering thing and he said a comment and I just had no reaction at all. I just looked at him and he was never friendly to me again. But honestly, that Psalm, I think it's like Psalm 141, that was in my mind. I just can't look, can't do it. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Pride. <laughs> Any thoughts on how we can fight pride and mortification? <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Anyone? I mean, seriously, I think that's a, you know, I think we should feel joy. If we do the Joseph thing and leave the garment in the wicked woman's hand and run for our lives, that's a, like, Lord, thank you that you helped me to deliver. But prayer, uh, is it done? Is Satan coming back? Maybe like 10 minutes later he'll come back. Yeah, absolutely. And so the idea is by the Spirit, so relying on the Spirit, say, oh God, Pray, pray directly to God the Father. Say, Father, you want me to be holy. You commanded me to be like you are. I'd be holy for I am holy. Would you now move through your spirit such a yearning for holiness right now? I know I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. I know I'm dead to this sin. And would you please make me holy? Get me out of this situation. Get me out of this thing. You said you would make a way of escape so I could bear up under it. And by the way, that's interesting. We are called, there's like almost conflicting strong images in the moment of temptation that we're given, okay? 
stand firm and run for your life. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a minute. Now, which is it? Both. You stand firm big picture by running for your life. You know how it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, all right, so I don't want to be in the temptation. So you need to be looking for the way of escape, like Joseph did. All right, so what's the way of escape? Get me out of this, not having sinned. And then guess what you did? You stood firm. So you stand firm by running. You stand firm by getting out of the situation. And then big picture, you also stand firm by not getting back in that situation. You might want to say, how did I even get there? How did I end up there? And it's like, well, this happened, this happened, and then this happened. Well, don't do this, this, or this. So it might be with the internet, might be with the computer. It might be certain things like, you know, for me, with, with my wife, we have, we have discussions sometimes that are challenging and all that, and they follow a very predictable pattern. They, I know I'm, hi, camera. I'm, we know the pattern. Hi, Christy, you know I love you, if you ever see this. It follows a very, and I don't know that my path is exactly like yours, but it's just the same tricks that the devil uses over and over to get two children of God to not evidently be loving each other at that moment. To study what happens, and inevitably there's pride on my part. There's probably some laziness and inconvenience on my part. There's some things on her part too, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to just pray for her. And, and I have a role as a shepherd to kind of lead her with that, but there's certain patterns. And so, big picture. We will weaken the category of sin by killing its temptation emanations. So as that sin, that radio station of sin on that frequency sends out the waves, kill them. And then the, the station gets weaker and weaker. It'll never go away while we live, but it's just going to get weaker. James, can I just pick up on that for a minute? It would be helpful for you. You know, it says in one thing, you know, that we should put to death this, 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 and this in Ephesians 5. Because of the, these things, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in all these ways. All right, that's one way to look at it. Here's another way, picking up. Because of these things, the wrath of God has already fallen on Jesus. And you can almost picture him being nailed for that. And it should cause you pain. You're like, Jesus was nailed for this. And, and it's like a time trick. It's already happened, but it's like, like the scripture says, you're crucifying the Son of God afresh. Um, that kind of thing. It's like, I don't want that sin because it was because of these things the wrath of God fell on Jesus. So there should be a, a hatred because of the atoning work of Christ. That's actually very, very helpful. All right, so we're out of time. So let's pick it up next time. We'll talk some more about it. But if I, just the, 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 the image I'm giving you here is slaying temptation and strangling or starving sin over a period of time. Strangling and starving both begin with S and they're the same idea. You're depriving it of something it needs to be vibrant and vital and vigorous. That's what we're trying to do. So we'll talk more next time. Richard, would you mind closing the prayer, brother? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.